Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Ed Plus Tech. We're a brand new podcast exploring the intersection between education and technology. This season, we're going to be interviewing different educators, software developers, and authors to look at all different sides of the EdTech equation, whether it's in a classroom or helping to create the software. I'm Devin. And I'm Daniel. And welcome to episode one. Today, we'll be talking to Max DiMartino, a curriculum developer here at Quill, previously a social studies teacher for 7th and 9th grade students. And without further ado, let's get started. When I joined, uh, I had friends who were still teachers who were like, oh, so you joined the OSU, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you're building Skynet to replace <laughs> us. And it's like, no, 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 guys, you don't understand how helpful this would be. Once again, welcome to Ed Plus Tech. Before we get to that interview with Max DiMartino, which again, we are very excited about, we wanted to share some of the news stories we found most interesting through our job research this week. It's our quick hits news segment of everything that we found crazy or just plain interesting in the education and ed tech world. There was an article from November 6th about a new startup called EduSense which is meant to be like a Fitbit for your teaching skills. And I just, I had a lot of thoughts about it. Just a brief segment from the article. Uh, It's a system called EduSense that analyzes a variety of visual and audio features that correlate with effective instruction. And what it tries to do is use two wall-mounted cameras in the classroom to sense student posture to determine their engagement and how much time instructors pause before calling on a student. The goal then behind this technology, as explained by the creators, would be to help minimize student distraction and help maximize teacher awareness of the attention their students pay. But I just, I read the article, and this is an article from Eureka Alert, and I, the fir- my first reaction was just, this is everything I don't like about EdTech, that this is too much. Yeah, you know, there's nothing better for a learning environment than surveillance. It's what we love. And we're some of the biggest proponents of ed tech, you know, around. But I think this just, for for me, and I think for Devin as well, it really goes to show there's limits to everything and there's ways to harness technology in helpful ways and there's ways where sometimes you need to possess the self-awareness and really an education background. Max touches on this in that interview, which I'm very excited to get to. But it's important that this technology remain in the hands of educators and people who have been in the classroom. That was at least my, (laughs) that was my immediate gut reaction to that. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I also was very freaked out by the article. I think, again, Max makes a lot of really good points in his interview about the ways that EdTech can be taken too far and why we have to make sure that these things don't become privatized because they can be used kind of to, for the uh, financial benefit of companies, but they don't actually end up benefiting students and teachers. On a more exciting note, on October 31st of this year, APA, the American Psychological Association, announced that they will endorse the use of they as a singular third-person pronoun in the seventh edition of 
the APA publication manual, which means you can officially use they in your writing as a good scholarly practice. This is something that's really exciting to me personally because I've never liked the construction of his or her, and I don't know if any of you have experienced this as well, but I just feel like writing it down always felt clunky and weird and unnatural, but I knew in school when I was growing up that that was the way he was supposed to write things, and I was corrected by my teachers. Um, I thought that this was cool. Also, I wanted to give a little bit of background, a brief history of the singular they. So the Oxford English Dictionary traces the first use of the singular they back to 1375, where it appears in a medieval romance novel called William and the Werewolf. But since forms of speech exist long before the primitive writing, we know it's likely that it probably existed even before the 14th century, which makes it a very, very old uh, accepted form in writing. And then later on, in the 18th century, people started to get a little bit more finicky about it, but starting in the 20th century, the singular day was accepted again by the New Oxford English Dictionary in 1998, and then by the New Oxford American Dictionary in 2010. If you want to read more about the history of the singular day, APA actually has a really cool post about it on my blog, so go to visit apastyle.apa.org. Um, I'm still waiting on the Chicago manual style to accept it so that we can finally use it on Quill because that's the manual style that we're aligned to. That's a cool thing to highlight though. Um, I didn't know anything about that, that initial history that you were saying they was used in writing, what was that, 1375? 1375, yeah, it goes with that. That's really cool because to your point, just language evolves and what are we doing if not acknowledging that? So good on APA. Yeah. Those are some of the major news articles we found in the ed tech world and education world generally over the past week. We are really excited to bring in our next guest. Here is Max DeMarchi. Max DiMartino. I'm a curriculum developer at Quill. Um, my work has to do with uh, an upcoming uh, product that um, promotes sentence expansion uh, for students. A lot of students get locked into these habits of writing very uh, short, concise sentences, which absolutely have their place in writing. But um, we want to add to their, you know, their uh, uh, writing toolkit and a writing tool belt, so to speak. And one of the tools is being able to write complex sentences. And so we're working on a product that helps promote that as part of argumentative writing. God, well, we are so glad to have you with us and be able to sit down and chat a little bit about your experience as a teacher and now helping do that curriculum development work from the ed tech side of things. And um, Devin and I are just going to start off wanting to ask you a little bit about the beginning of your timeline, what got you interested in teaching in the first place? Sure. Um, so I had actually uh, thought about teaching early on, I think when I was around 16 or 17, um, I had a number of really, number really stand out, like charismatic and inspiring teachers in high school, and I felt like, oh, I could be one of those guys. But for one reason or another, I didn't pursue teaching immediately, and I ended up going for a degree in political science. It was after graduating college and after doing a year with uh, in a, in a corporate position that I didn't really much care for. Um, I went back and I, I thought like, oh, maybe I should somehow take my background in political science and, and marry it to education. Because something in the back of my mind said like, you know, you initially thought about this years ago, 
why not revisit it? And I ended up reading a book called uh, Teaching America, The Case for Civic Education, mm -hmm. um, which is a collection of essays from current teachers, former teachers, school administrators, politicians, lawyers, any number of, any number of people who, uh, who really wanted to uh, discuss the value of civic education and civics. And their whole thesis was that we lost sight of uh, civics in the classroom because it was interpreted as kind of like this, this like nationalistic and jingoistic thing, and and uh, so in, in wanting to avoid being being like this um, dogmatic jingoistic uh, set of content to teach, um, schools lost sight of like teaching students how government works, mm -hmm. how to take part in the American democracy. And I had this background in political science. Is like, wow, this is this is this right. book is really speaking to me. So like, I, I should go teach social studies. Should be a social studies teacher. So, um, after reading the book, I actually applied to a graduate program in New York City. Uh, I got in, and um, uh, from there, I began my teaching career. So is that kind of what drew you to teaching social studies? Like, I know that you um, had some experience actually teaching Indigenous history to middle schoolers. And I know, at least for me, when I was in school, I learned no indigenous history. It wasn't something that I was educated about until college. So what was that like teaching them? How did your students respond to that? And like, were there any pitfalls? Were they surprised to uh, learn this? I think, I mean, the thing is, it, I think as part of a lot of school uh, socialist cur uh, curricula, there, there is at least a mention of indigenous history, mm -hmm. um, kind of every part of like every social studies program, you have to cover this tribe or that tribe or this nation or that nation. Um, but what I really wanted to do was, I, I want to localize it for one, because I felt like, mm -hmm. okay, it'll, what'll really make it stand out to, um, to the students in, in New York City is A, like, let's look at, let's look at, uh, uh, American Indian nations that were like in the New York City area, yeah. and then two, so many of my students, at least that first year when I was teaching seventh grade, were um, they're from uh, Caribbean households, and so I felt like, oh, even more so, like let's look at uh, uh, indigenous Caribbean peoples, and so I don't know that they were like totally swept and up and amazed by it, um, as much as I wish they were. You know, the twelve, so a lot of them was like at school, school, but but. Um, but I at least tried to make it um, regional, regionally or geographically relevant. Does that make sense? Yeah. Switching gears for, for a little bit now, sure. now that you're on the almost other side of things, working as a curriculum developer at Quill, are there any tools that you know now that you wish you knew about then? And the flip side of that, did you use any ed tech tools uh, to help you when you when you were a teacher? Um, I I think actually um, I think the most useful thing that I've come across is is actually a quote product, not not to plug, but it was uh, the diagnostic. Um, I think one of the big challenges I had I, I just mentioned when I was at the regions how we had a wide range of reading levels. Um, now I know. Quill's diagnostic is, is designed more for writing than reading, but it all falls under the blanket of literacy. And the reality, the reality is for a classroom as small as 
nine students and as large as 30 students, there's going to be a wide range of literacy skills that a teacher will have to accommodate, right? Because we're seeing more generalized classes than tracked classes, which is good. I mean, the thing is, in the past, they would just track students and say, highs are here, lows are there, and, and it, would, it, would, it would isolate and alienate students. So you don't want to do that. But now that we have, uh, now the classes are more inclusive, and now the classes are, are, are more gen ed, um, there's a little more work for the teacher to do as far as uh, leveling and scaffolding goes. So if something like Quill's, the Quill Diagnostic was available to me when I was teaching, I, I could administer that myself and I can get a read on where my students are quickly, as opposed to having to advocate for some sort of benchmark or baseline test, request that sort of thing, have the school approved, go through a recall and testing process, then wait on the data. Because I think the schools do that. Schools, see, schools do administer diagnostics to, to uh, measure where the students are, but it's, right. a, it's a much bigger project. You say, oh, can we do the, you know, will, our, will the English department do the Gates beginning test this year? Are we doing Lexile? Are, that sort of thing. But with something like full diagnostic, I could do it for free, and I could like I could um, I could find out with with uh, with some immediacy like how or, well the needs of my students. I mean, as a teacher, of course, you should have an idea of what your students' needs are. A good teacher will have a sense of these things, but a good teacher will also know what his or her uh, limitations are as sense as sort of sensing these things go, and they'll also see the value in documenting. Um, and cataloging their students' needs. So that, that, again, that's why I think something like a, a diagnostic service or a diagnostic uh, 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 product from an ed tech is invaluable. That's one thing that we talk about a lot here at Quill is kind of making sure that our tools aren't used ever to replace direct instruction, but that they're a supplemental tool. Like we like to say that teachers are the heroes and Quill is just sort of the helper, and I know that on your team you work really directly, you obviously were an educator and you work really directly with other educators. Um, how do you see that informing your work here, kind of working with teachers? Do you think that does a lot of good work? I do, I do, and I actually really like that that's sort of, you know, one of the, the you know, the mottos here. Um, mostly because when I joined, when I joined, uh, I had friends who were still teachers who were like, oh, so you joined the other side, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you're building Skynet to replace <laughs> us. And it's like, no, 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 guys, you don't understand how helpful this would be. Um, the whole thing is that um, when you see that there are certain skill gaps for students, um, well, there's two things going on. You see that your students have skill gaps, but you also acknowledge that you have a curriculum to get through, right? How do you do both, right? And um, how do you make sure you're meeting their needs, but also answering the, the curriculum, the, the, the curricular demands that are, you know, above you, the, the, right? How do you get through, for me, because I was social studies, how do you get through whole scope and sequence math? How do I get through a year's worth of material, but also pause where I need to, to make sure that I'm bridging those literacy and writing gaps to students so that they can access that very curriculum that I'm holding them to, right? Um, with some of these edtech services and products, the teacher is able to set aside a little bit of time to do that. Um, 
without it eating up an entire class. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can, I mean, a, a teacher's lesson plan has a, has a workflow, right? 10 minutes for this, 15 minutes for that, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. With something like what, what Quill is doing, is because these activity packs are 10 to 20 minutes each, they don't have to be administered every day. And it's the kind of thing where, you, where a teacher can say, hey, I'm actually working to close uh, student X's uh, uh, subject verb agreement gap. I can do that over the course of 10 minutes twice a week. So it's only 20 minutes a week, but mm-hmm. it's, it, it is, you are reinforcing this thing and you're not totally uh, uh, stepping outside of your curriculum schedule either you know and I think and so I think the teacher does still have um, agency there is there advice that helps um, lessen that learning curve that you have for teachers first trying to implement ed tech in the classroom are there any resources that you can think of off the top of your head that would have helped you or helped you with that transition refamiliarizing myself with uh, with studies and pedagogical developments I was already aware of uh, and then familiarizing myself with ones I hadn't done. I think even before like playing around with different ed tech uh, services and products, mm-hmm. I think the best thing that teachers can do is say like, okay, is do the homework for what informs the development of those products. That's what, that's what it is. You know, for me, like being a developer here, I couldn't just like jump into the product I'm working on. I think I had to, I had some familiarity with say the writing revolution and I had to really read through it and to really study like what what does the Hockman method mean you know so I think the biggest piece of advice I can give to teachers who are working with new education technologies um, whether it's products or services is do a little bit of homework uh, on the 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 research and science and the learning science the pedagogy behind these products, the service foundation for these products. Like Quill, with us, it's primarily writing revolution. That, uh, it'll make a world of difference to a teacher who's using a Quill product if they have not a working knowledge of writing revolution. You know what, quick flip side sure. yeah. off of that actually sure. is then, is there anything that ed tech companies can then do to, on their end, to better the product the product for teachers? You know, if teachers are doing that homework, what homework can ed tech companies be doing? Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. No, no, no. I, I, I think, I mean, I think a lot of them are doing a good job of like getting feedback from teachers, but um, I think, I think there should be more open access for information between schools and and uh, the ed tech companies I think if you are if your school is a client of a given ed tech company if you are paying for some service or you know in the, in the instance of a, of a nonprofit or uh, service you're at least you're a, a user um, I think schools should be maybe a little li- well and this is tough tough to answer because I also know that there's a legal situation uh, there's some legal restrictions. What I'm trying to say is that um, I don't think schools should let confidentiality of, of, of uh, student information block them from, from making the, the most of an ed tech service um, because the ed tech services really can be, t- can be tailored to your students' needs if they know more about your students. 
that make sense? Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. <laughs> long way of saying, you know, <laughs> uh, more information all around would be helpful. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think, I think like even, you know, with what we're doing, I think if the school said like, okay, especially because you do get to know your, your schools as clients, right? So with an, from now, from like the Quill side of things, it would be helpful for us if school X uh, says like, hey, look, in general, these are where our students are. Can you satisfy those needs? You know? So I think, I think there's, I think if, if EdTech companies maybe was asking or were asking for more uh, personalized information, that would be very helpful. Right. So sort of wrapping up and looking to the future, yep. what do you see as an optimal future of EdTech in the classroom? And then as the other side of that question, what do you think the limitations are of EdTech and how do you think um, developers and companies and also teachers can sort of deal with those limitations to make these tools the most helpful that they can be? Um, I think, I mean, an ideal like uh, the, the uh, ideal situation or the, or the best it could be will be um, I know the more schools are, are incorporating co-teaching or you have multiple teachers in a given classroom, I think I think you should have a I think the ed tech companies should be advocating for additional staffing in schools to work specifically with their products or work specifically with, uh, yeah, yeah, with the products and services. So that you have your master teacher or your co-teacher, you know, you have, you have your, your traditional classroom teacher, so there might be two of them. And then the third body in the room would be someone who is a master of the ed tech services that your school has agreed to use, mm -hmm. you know. Which which could be a school member. I'm I'm, not, I'm by no means saying hey you know you need you need a consultant from one of these companies. Not at all. But you need to have someone who's trained thoroughly, who is that specialist in the classroom. And I think that be I think that would make it work um, pretty seamlessly. Actually, you know, um, it's sort of like when you have when you have uh, in any workplace setting you have someone who's like specifically trained in CPR or whatever. You know, if, if you have that for um, for a number of edtech services, I think that would be, uh, I think would be invaluable in the classroom. Um, I'm sorry, what was the other study across the flip side? What, what would be your like? Uh, what do you think the limitations are of edtech in the classroom? What would be like a dystopian future oh, yeah. of edtech? <laughs> okay. And just for context sure. on that, something that we had discussed earlier yeah. on this podcast was an edtech startup that was putting motion sensors in the classroom to gauge student motion and then alert the teachers to if they were paying attention or not, which seemed pretty <laughs> yeah. problematic, at least to us. So yeah, that no, absolutely. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, I think a big problem would be if, if schools start going down the paths. I, I've been saying school more so than classroom or teacher because I think so, so many of these decisions are about the teachers themselves settling up. Right. You know, uh, if, if, it's just a reality that I see, you know. Uh, but I think the thing is, like, the dark path of ed tech would be, um, I don't know, I guess, like, the privatization, the full privatization of curriculum. Mm -hmm. I think when you get to a point where it's, like, a school teaches only, you know, the blank method or approach in accordance mm -hmm. with this product or company that they've contracted with. I mean, that's that's when you, that's when you have basically private interests are controlling education, and I'm not into that. You know. Right. Of course. Yeah. 
I mean, the, think about it. It's like it's like if it's one thing if you say like our school has agreed to buy this this publisher's textbooks. It's another thing to say that like this publisher is dictating every facet of our of our of our, of our school's um, uh, curriculum. Right. You know, and that's I think that could happen with EdTech if if mishandled. Right. You know? On that note, here's to the brighter future in the ed tech and in the classroom and post the dystopian one. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell them uh, <laughs> Thank you so sure, much for joining sure. us. Once again, that was Max Martino, a teacher and curriculum developer at Quill.org. Thanks again for the time. Absolutely, absolutely. Happy to help. Um, that was a really cool interview. I thought it was great to have Max on and hear about his thoughts on ed tech now, now that he's working in an ed tech startup. Yeah, and I thought it was really cool that um, one of his biggest suggestions for EdTech was to make sure that educators work at the companies that are designing these different types of software. It made me really proud that Quill is one of those companies that has a lot of educators on staff. Um, I guess going off of that, do we can talk about our best practice of the week. So one question that I get a lot uh, from teachers, because we also, both of us run the support channel for Quill, so any questions that teachers have, um, if you are asking a question about Quill, you have a technical problem, some sort of issue, you're talking to one of us. It's a fun little behind the scenes tip. We yeah. are support at quill.org. Yeah, so if you ever have a question, you can say hi Devin or hi Dan. One question that I get a lot is teachers look on the site and they're really excited about what we have to offer, but they don't exactly know how to get started or how much students should be using Quill. Um, so we wanted to talk about kind of what we recommend or what we see different teachers doing. And again, this can be, like, it totally depends on what type of instruction you're looking for, and that's the beauty of the tools that it can be used in a lot of different ways. Um, but the way that we usually recommend it is two or three times a week for around 10 or 20 minutes a day. And the great thing about that is it then allows Quill to really be a supplemental tool to your own instruction because it's not too much time out of that lesson, but it's a great then additional supplement to to ease students into the program and reinforce any concepts you might be working on. So yeah, we recommend that two to three times a week for Quill, 10 to 20 minutes a day. And that's also, that goes for a lot of general uh, reading and writing online instruction too. So just a good, a good general uh, suggested time frame that has worked for us. Yeah, one thing I see teachers do a lot is, um, since each activity takes about 10 minutes, they'll assign one or two activities to their students at the beginning of the class period, and then students can work on those as sort of like a warm-up, so it gets them in the right mindset to learn for the day. It reinforces skills that they might have learned earlier in the week. Uh, they're typing, they're on the program, so that's one helpful thing is to have it be like a do-now activity for your class. Yeah, and generally with these best practices, this is a and every podcast segment for us, best practice of the week. And going forward, we wanted to hear your best practices, what's something you found helpful as a best practice for teaching, especially any kind of best practices you have for any ed tech you use in your classrooms or getting started with ed tech. So please, please, please send us thoughts and best practices for a chance to be featured on the Ed Plus Tech podcast and get a sweet quill hoodie out of the deal. Email us at Devin at quill.org or daniel.g at quill.org. That's D-E-V-I-N at quill.org or D-A-N-I-E-L period G at quill.org. 
And that concludes our inaugural episode of Ed Plus Tech. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting. If you came from a Quill link, thank you so much for all you do in continuing to support Quill. We're really excited for the next time on the pod. We'll be talking to an educator from outside of the Quill world and getting another perspective on what makes EdTech tick in the classroom and what that future looks like. As always, we really want to hear from you. So if you have any questions, suggestions, or just want to say your favorite recipe to us, please reach out to us through Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Otherwise, that's it from Ed Plus Tech.